Hello and welcome back to the freshly named, newly named Man with a Movie podcast. Podcast. My name is Linus and I'm joined by my co-host Daniel. Hello. That's uh, So yeah, it's a good name you picked out. Yeah, finally, after an arduous consideration process, a lot of arguments, uh, borderline violence, we finally did select select mm-hmm. a name and we just basically took took a film slightly twisted it turns out it's a pretty good name yeah we were pretty close to fisticuffs at one point yeah <laughs> my my question with the name though it says man so which which one of us has the podcast it's a good question i guess you, you came up with the idea for the podcast so i want to say yeah i want to say it's probably you unless we're just like mm-hmm. this amalgamous being just one man mm-hmm. that slowly mm-hmm. will come together as the podcast progresses i like that yeah thematically we're all one person <laughs> exactly yes. yeah this will be like the ending of possession when both <laughs> of them die and just become that one creature <laughs> I, I like that you can compare every part of life to possession in some way <laughs> that's true yeah i often do <laughs> so what are we talking about today so today what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be doing a little recap of 2023 at the time of when we're recording this. Uh, it's just the start of 2024, January 5th actually. And we're going to look back on the year and essentially look at, at what we watched, what directors we discovered, maybe genres or movements that we were into, and maybe even talk about what was happening in 2023 in the world of film. And we're going to be starting out by talking about directors. What directors were we into this year? What directors we discovered? What sort of stuff were we watching? Was there anyone that we fell in love with, someone rediscovered, that sort of thing? Do you have any names in mind, Daniel? Yeah, there's one. So I look back at my year and there weren't really, I don't think I binged directors exactly, which is kind mm. of interesting. So I, there weren't, there wasn't like, a big name that captivated me in this, like in 2022, I discovered Teo Angelopoulos, who was may, who might be my favorite filmmaker ever. Um, last oh, year, really last year, I, I think I only really discovered one name who I would consider maybe an all time favorite, although I'd still have to probably see more of his films and rewatch some of his films. And he's not a household name. <laughs> uh, his, uh, his name is Mani Kal. Uh, mm. he's an Indian director, uh, and it's, he made the he, clay documentary, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He has a very interesting place kind of in film and nowadays. So I think a lot of people would know Satyajit Ray, who is mm, probably yeah, the most sure. famous director of the parallel cinema, kind of a movement. It's really a loose amalgamation of a variety of directors and things. Uh, but basically, it refers to the films made in India around the 50s, 60s, 70s that were just non-mainstream. It's really just yeah. like non-mainstream films. So um, Satyajit Ray is the biggest name, and he made a lot of stunning films. The Opu Trilogy, The Big City, yeah. and The Music Room uh, are all incredible films. And the thing, though, is I don't think a lot of people know much else about Indian film or that movement. And uh, I don't. I wouldn't suggest Many Call is the first name to turn to. I, I think other 
films and people to check out would be like Piazza by Guru Dutt and Ritwik Gatak. But mm. once you kind of dig into it more, uh, you you do see that Manikal, he comes in a little bit after these guys and his style is completely separate and different from all of them altogether. Uh, where, I, where I'd call like Ray and Gatak as informed more by neorealism um, and yeah. have a, I think, a lot more accessible style and themes and characters call comes more from the brissonian tradition uh, it's a lot more experimental oh, interesting yeah so he has his films are a lot more austere uh there's kind of somewhat experimental i'd say they they exist in a in a plane not unlike uh parajanov um or Wirasethakul, uh at least some of his later ones uh his his debut uskid rodi um which hmm. means our daily bread is very much like Brisson, I think, in a lot of ways. And that would be a pretty good starting point uh, for people who like Brisson. And then uh, the other film I, I, I think is my favorite of his that would also act as a good starting point is called Duvida. Um, and that that's kind of more in this uh, otherworldly, where ethical range, where it's it's hmm. very much focused on um, a meditative look at um, kind of it's kind of like a ghost story, and and it is very focused okay. on on images, silence, stillness, um, very spiritual. Uh, his documentaries, like the one you mentioned, Mind of Clay, uh, and and there's another one called Drupad, which are both uh, really poetic as well. Um, yeah, and would also act as I think pretty good entry points. But I, he gets a lot more insane later on in his in his career so yeah he's he's probably the biggest discovery for me um as well as indian cinema in general uh there are a lot of kind of insane directors who made films in the <laughs> even 60s and 70s um yeah <laughs> uh and yeah many call he's even like if thinking of like the iceberg again he's not even like the bottom of the iceberg in terms of Indian cinema at this time. Um, yeah. Um, I still have a lot more to discover s- still, but he's probably the, the biggest name. I'll, I'll give a, a quick shout out to a few others. Um, and you can chime in on these as well. Um, Bartos, okay. um, Lithuanian director, um, yeah. Franco Piavoli and, uh, Teo Hernandez were three others. I, I saw quite a bit of and, and really, really enjoyed as well. Mm. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting that you had such a big year of sort of exploring Indian cinema because um, Indian cinema is like one of my biggest blind spots, I'd say, like from at least the big cinema countries. All I know about it is basically just the stuff that I very briefly studied in uni. We had like two lectures on on Indian cinema, and that's about all 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 I really know. Um, I've I've heard of Manikau mostly for the for the Clay film, the Clay documentary, Mind of Clay. Uh, I've seen mm. one film by Ray, but I also this is probably my only t- my only opportunity to like repeat this anecdote that I've that I've heard. So I'll I'll say it now, even though there's there's like no reason to bring it up. But <laughs> I think when it was Pavar Panchali that screened in in Cannes, and obviously all the French New Wave guys were watching the films. <laughs> For some reason, Truffaut. <laughs> Apparently he really hated the film, and after the film, he, he just came out came out and said this this famous comment when he said, "I don't want to watch uh, 
peasants eat with their hands for two hours <laughs> which is just so out of pocket oh it's God. not even what the film is about <laughs> uh, i gotta lower all my truffaut ratings now <laughs> yeah slice them all down yeah yeah uh Jeez. yeah for uh. me um I don't really binge directors either, but this this was a big year in terms of me discovering a few people that I was wasn't never familiar with. Like I've I've heard of them before, but this this was the year when I first checked them out, and a few of them I, I in particular sort of fell in love with, and the two that really stand out is uh, Eric Romer and Johnny Toe. Like I think. Uh, I watched Boyfriends and Girlfriends, the Eric Romero film, at the very start of last year. And since then, I've just gone through his his catalog over the year, mostly in the summer. I feel like his films are very, very well suited to, to a summer viewing. And yeah, I've just really familiarized myself with his catalog. And I, I really love his stuff. For people unfamiliar, Romero essentially makes these really stripped back romance films where there's not a whole lot of camera movement, there's no real like sort of technique in terms of filmmaking involved. It's uh, for the most part just sort of people talking and they usually focus on various various aspects of romance like insecurity or jealousy or loneliness or uh, expecting some something of another person like in a good marriage or something along those lines. And the other filmmaker I was really into was actually Johnny Toe, who's a Hong Kong action director. Uh, he's most famous for his heroic bloodshed films. So he made two, two exiled movies. He made The Mission, um, uh, Throwdown, and a bunch of other films. And he's another person that was kind of surprised that I enjoyed him as 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 much as I did. Like I've heard of him previously, but I've never checked anything out by him. Then I just saw one film, it was really fun. I saw another film, it was really fun. And I was, before I know it, I've just seen like a bunch of his films and all of them were just a lot of fun to watch. Mm. And I guess this year I also realized, because like I'd say both of them, Eric Romer and Johnny Toe, definitely have like slotted into the mix of directors that I consider to be like my favorite directors of all time, directors I enjoy watching the most. And I realized that every director on that list is is known for, for making films using the humanist approach. Um, now, humanist film theory, I'm pretty sure it's not a real film, not, not a real thing, but what the humanist approach essentially boils down to is that they, in their films, they really focus their attention on the people and in particular, the connection that people form with one another. So in Eric Romer films, it's it's really obvious that's pretty much all their all his films are about. They're about sort of chance encounters with one another, falling in love, falling out of love, all the sort of intricacies of human relationships and connection. But Johnny Toe as well, sort of surprisingly, even though he obviously makes these these crime films, but a lot of them are uh, about people connecting, like in Exiled, uh, the four people that end up sort of getting exiled, they connect with one another, they grow in the film really is about their relationship and relationship with, with the one person that dies at the start of the film. And the mission as well, it's all about the connection that these sort of criminals form with one another. And a film like Throwdown, even though it seems like it's about judo and then at the end of the film you think, oh, it's actually about blindness. But in actuality, the whole film is actually about friendship. 
and some of my other filmmakers as well, like Kishlavsky, also very much makes films using the humanist approach, like Free Colors Red is pretty much a film all about like chance encounters and connecting with people as well. Uh, Jim Jarmuk as well, he's, he also uses the humanist approach quite a lot. Um, and even someone like Pedro, Pedro Almodovar, he also sort of falls into that same category. And I never sort of realized, I just thought, oh, I like what I like. And there's no, re no real thing that sort of connects, connects all of these weird interests that I have. Mm. Until like very recently, I discovered, oh, they actually, there is like one big similarity in how they approach cinema and how they approach mm. their subject matter. Yeah, I was going to actually bring that up about humanist cinema because I would I would definitely categorize Romero and Toe, even though I've only seen one Toe, as mm. falling under that umbrella. Um, and the examples he lists are interesting because the human. I, I also love humanist humanist uh, cinema, um, and I would throw in a few other directors uh, for me, like Edward Yang and Abbas Kiarostami. Mm. Yeah, uh, for sure. Two big big names who are really about how I guess more about the goodness in people than like Yeah. I think I'd I'd like to hear your answer, but at least for me, why do I like humanist film in particular? It really feels more like a breath of fresh air compared to, you know, everything else. Maybe you even grew up watching everything yeah. else kind of in the mainstream film that's filled with like character tropes, people that are either like a pure villain or like a a side comedic relief character or like a mm. perfect flawless hero, et cetera. But yeah. I mean, people in real life are, are clearly much more complicated in 3d. And I do like films that are really about that, that are find, you know, the good and the ugly and in, in characters that, yeah. you know, it really just explores their depth. Um, and they're not, I don't think as much, plot focused at least the ones that i like um they're really more about the characters and their relationships um yeah for sure like all all the filmmakers i listed like e even some like johnny toe obviously pays pays a lot of attention to the plots and even i'd say even eric romero even though there's there's not a lot of action i'd say his his films are pretty tightly scripted and if if you rewatch some of them you really do see him sort of lay the hints for what's about to happen later like i've noticed just because i watched a lot of his films this year a lot of them follow this structure where at the start of the film a character lays out their almost philosophy it doesn't necessarily have to be like philosophy on life sometimes it's like philosophy on love philosophy on friendship and something along those lines and then it sort of gets challenged throughout the film uh, but mm. yeah as as you sort of mentioned what i what i really like is that uh, the people who utilize the humanist approach it's almost like they have they have more compassion for their characters and they do almost treat yep. them like like very like complete people. Like I think Pedro Almodovar really stands out in that aspect. Like I think all his films are categorized by like how much compassion he has for the people that he he's making his films about. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I would agree. I I think I haven't seen a whole lot of Almodovar. Um, yeah, I do think he's. I do think with humanist films, he's probably one that has a lot more style, um, as as long as like someone like Jarmusch as well, like yeah, you mentioned. Um, and I like them, but I also think uh, I I think for these types of films, I also uh, with the two I mentioned, like Yang and Kiarostami, mm. the they're really just kind of. The camera is just kind of laid back and static. 
in a lot of them. Yeah. And I think there's multiple approaches. There's no like right or wrong. That's just kind of the main approach I gravitate towards. Kind of yeah. purely situating it, the camera, allowing the characters to interact and and kind of laying back very little music. Interestingly enough, I did also watch my my first first two Edward Yang films this year as well. I watched mm. Yi and I watched Taipei Story. Mm. And I think Yi in particular, like when, when I saw it, I, I thought I certainly thought it was very good, but I, I maybe didn't love it as much as uh, some other people because mm. I know it's like a massive film. Like everyone really likes that film, but it has like really, really grown in my mind. And I really remember like some of the scenes super viv- vividly from that film. I liked the restaurant film restaurant scene uh, I don't remember the characters names but it's between uh, I, I think people know which scene I'm, which scene I'm talking about it's a very infamous scene and I also really remember that one quote about movies where one of the characters says uh, my uncle says that watching movies is like living free lives that movies account for the two like two other mm. lives worth of experience and I really like that quote and has really sort of stuck stuck in my mind yeah, Yang's dialogue is is always great, but yeah, Yi Yi and A Brighter Summer Day are my two favorites, and they they are just really poetic with the characters, the dialogue, mm. and everything without being like overly so. They're really just kind of naturalist sort of films. Yeah, um, yeah. And as a side note, I will be rewatching Yi Yi and a, a couple other Yangs. Uh, in the theater because there's a retrospective going oh, on. Oh wow! This month. Oh, so. that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> that's will, awesome. I will, I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, mm, yeah, I, I think I'll check out a brighter summer day at some time in the near future as well, like in the next three months or so, just so I have seen the the three big Edward Yang films that most people know about. But okay, yeah, I think find be... four hours of, of free time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a classic. <laughs> yeah, but I think should we move on to the to the next question now? Yeah, please. Okay, next up, uh, we're gonna talk about genres and movements that we sort of really were watching the most this year. Are there any sort of genres that you in particular explored this year? Yes, I I will caveat this by saying these are really not traditional genres. Hmm. Uh, so I guess just the first I'll talk about is diary cinema or yeah. these are, I mean, the, the word diary in relation to film is always kind of strange because diary is an inherently different medium. It's, it's mm. a, you know, it's a book and there's not really an exact one-to-one version for a film. Even the ones like the examples I'll mention, they're, they're really films that are like just personal documentaries, uh, which are not exactly the same. I think a diary, like as a book, you think of it as like a collection of your thoughts from the from day to day. Uh, and yeah. the only there's really only a, maybe a few filmmakers out there who who do something like that. Jonas Mikos is probably the most known, uh, and even still, I, mm-hmm. I'm sure he edits down a lot of his footage, so it's not really just here's every single day of his life. Um, but you know, <laughs> sure. a lot of his films are give you that impression at least um but yeah a diary cinema at least to my knowledge and kind of the way it's used um is just films that have a similar function just really personal essay films or films that have 
serve as letters or just anything with a personal perspective. So some qualities of these are like the filmmakers, the, the subject of the work or family of the filmmaker and the footage is somewhat DIY, usually just like handheld and nothing fancy. Um, so a few films from this movement I'd like to shout out include a letter from a filmmaker to his daughter by Eric Powell's, um, good film. Who's a wonderful essayist filmmaker. Um, I've seen one other film of his would, would strongly recommend it's it's this one is a very very wholesome very short just kind of compilation of stories and facts about life uh, that this filmmaker who's traveled around the world and has kind of all this you, you sense he has all this wisdom to, to tell his daughter um, and he's just passing it along uh, to her uh, in this film form um, uh there's this other film called For One More Hour With You, which is somewhat of an opposite type of film where it's about a f- filmmaker looking at uh, her mother. Um, mm. And I won't exactly spoil it, but it's really tragic. And it's it's basically like, what if I just had one more hour with you, uh, you know, to live with? Uh, all all I, I really have are pieces of like photos and, and video and, stories and things from other people who knew my mother. Um, and so she compiles it and to try to weave together the narrative of, of who she actually was. So it's really, uh, to, to me, very heartbreaking. Um, yeah, and, and a few others as well. I think those were two of the biggest standouts for me. Um, so that's one genre. <laughs> um, uh, uh, one other one, um, which is a little bit, adjacent not not too dissimilar um because it's somewhat it's also documentary um yeah it's the observational documentary mm. and you know this this originally was called like cinema verite in the the 60s uh you had chronicle of a summer i think was, was the title one of the first films in the style um, just basically like the the documentary is about like asking questions to people on the street and very it, th- these types of films are really non-intrusive with the filmmaking mm. uh usually like no voiceover or anything like that it's really just yeah. capturing the world the people the subjects as they are which i always like personally um there, there are good documentarians who, who who give great voiceovers like Werner herzog of course uh mm. but <laughs> but for me at least i like the the kind of laid backness of, of these films, how they just let the viewer observe and make their own decisions or thoughts about w- what they're seeing. So yeah. probably the biggest name for me, at least in this genre is Frederick Wiseman. And he makes, I've only seen like a very small handful of his films, but he makes these usually pretty long uh, compilations of looks at like industries, um, not necessarily like, how bad they are, although some of his earlier ones are are about that, but just just looks at these industries the the and from a personal perspective, like you'll you'll just mm. see like footages, for example, in like uh, the la- latest one I watched, which was at Berkeley, you'll get lots of footage of just meetings of teachers behind the scenes talking about things like their their budgets for the year and <laughs> some of the compromises they'll have to make. Um, you'll get footage yeah. from classroom lectures. Um, about students discussing ideas, uh, really just a comprehensive look at this institution from the inside and out. And I, I just find that 
pretty incredible. Um, it's, you know, how you can try to capture something so gigantic um, from a personal kind of view. Um, and then there, there's a few others as well. I, I mentioned Bartos earlier. Um, he made this, this yeah. one called um, In Memory of a Day Passed By. Uh, I, I look at a, I, I actually don't know which city this was, but it was a city in Lithuania. Uh, it, it's, it's really kind oh, of a, <laughs> a cold and, you know, an alienating look at, at this city with, with the people that are really just trying to make it through each day. Um, it's a, yeah, it, one, there's this one shot that stuck with me from this where, uh, you follow this, uh, I think an organist to the top of like a bell tower and they're about to play something, but the camera yeah. just lingers on them as they're trying to, you can sense they have pain, like they're trying to warm up their hands or trying to get ready to play. But there's just like a solid few minutes of, of the camera showing them, um, you know, trying to deal with the kind of everyday mundane pains and aches of, of daily life so not a not a cheerful film but a but a really powerful <laughs> one uh, personally um yeah so th- those are those are at least some examples and some reasons why at least these two genres are really impactful for me yeah most of, most of my familiarity with diary cinema comes from jonas mekas particularly because i'm lithuanian myself and he's like the one good filmmaker that we have and Strangely enough, he's not even very much, very much known down here in Lithuania. Like people, people just kind of know him for for his poetry here rather than his cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm familiar with some of his films. I've seen diaries, notes, and sketches, and that well, very much feels like feels like a diary. It's sort of split into multiple parts to showcase different, uh, not even different parts of his life, more more like different events, different sort of segments of his life really or his 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 time in america but yeah i i don't think i've i've seen too many observational documentaries but uh that is something i'd, I'd be interested in sort of checking out more of one day mm. so what were some genres you discovered this year so i couldn't think of any genres i necessarily discovered but uh, there were there was one that I sort of rediscovered and one that I I delved uh, deeper into to the point where I, I could say I like discovered more of like the, the depths of the genre. So the one I rediscovered was actually Westerns because for the longest time I thought that I didn't like Westerns uh, up to like the start, the end of last year, uh, as in 2022, not 2023. Um, I still just kind of didn't didn't care too much about westerns. Didn't think that they were sort of there was anything in them that would interest me uh, until this year. I did a bit of like a Sergio Leone deep dive where I sort of mm. finished up his his filmography, and I watched uh, for a few dollars more. I watched uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, and I watched Ducky Sucker, and all three of those films were really sort of masterfully done. Uh, in particular, what really sort of Im- impressed me was just uh, Leone's mastering over over filmmaking. Like I, d- I can't really remember, but I don't think it was really there in, in a fistful of dollars. But the control that he has in in a film like Once Upon a Time in the West is really, really yep. impressive, and how he's able to to pull off almost like like this slow burn 
what <clears throat> almost like the slow burn western concept it's it's really like awe inspiring in a way uh, but aside from Leone, I also checked out a few a few other sort of iconic westerns that I've never seen. Like I checked out The Great Silence, which was also really, really good and really devastating. I also watched uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And I also checked out a couple of uh, John Ford westerns. I watched Stagecoach and I, sh- and I watched uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which was really good in particular. And it left quite an impression on me. And all of those films combined did sort of change my opinion over westerns as a whole. And now I think it's 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 a genre I'm very much interested in. And there's certainly a lot more that I want to discover in it. Yeah, I I find it interesting. At least uh, I kind of agree. But I, I you gravitated more towards later westerns, westerns of mm. like the '60s and '70s. Uh, it's you know it's been a genre that's was kind of established around the. I mean, it, there were silent westerns, but it, were, it really took off yeah. in like the, the 30s and 40s. And to me, at least, I, I do find the more modern takes on the western, even starting from something like um, Rio Bravo or The Searchers in the 50s, uh, just the complexity that those films have even compared to the earlier films, which are, I mean, are still yeah. good, but they, they, I don't find them as relatable in the same way. Um, I don't know if you've seen The Searchers, but it's it's a it's a hell of a film in terms of uh, what it has to to say or showcase about like race and and uh, the tensions therein. Um, uh, you yeah. know, a lot of people might think it is racist. Um, I haven't seen it in a while. I can't exactly weigh in on whether it is or not, but it it is certainly a strong film from the fifties uh, that that takes tackles something that I don't think most films would dare to tackle. Um, yeah, and then mm. and then those those '60s films like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance um, uh, are really just kind of these reflections on the Western, which was kind of a dying genre at that time. Um, and then you you even mentioned uh, more spaghetti westerns as well, which yeah uh, uh, are are really fun. Uh, Leone is is certainly a master. Um, I haven't seen any Corbucci films, but I know I know The Great Silence is is supposed to be really good. Um, yeah, the the only the only '40s uh, western I checked out was Stagecoach, which I did like quite a bit. I thought it was a really, really enjoyable watch. I, I like how Ford did all the different characters in there and made them work together really well. Obviously, a super iconic character reveal in that film as well, where where mm-hmm. they show uh, John Wayne for the first time, and it's mm-hmm. very famous famous shot in cinema history. Uh, I also did check out some like 60s stuff, like early Sam Peckinpah films as well. Mm. Uh, I found his stuff a bit a bit hit or miss, but I did really enjoy The Wild Bunch as well. Uh, but aside from Westerns, uh, another sort of genre slash movement that I sort of delved uh, a lot deeper into was sort of like experimental slash avant-garde cinema. I had some familiarity with it already from people like Mechas or Scott Barley. Uh, but this year I really sort of explored all, all the possibilities that were out there for me. And I and I watched uh, a bunch of Stan Brakic films. I watched a bunch of films uh, from someone you mentioned previously, Teo Hernandez. Uh, I also checked out some shorts from Takashi Ito, uh, Kurt Krenn, and a bunch of other people like Leighton Pierce as well. And I... 
yeah, I think I've at the moment I feel like I feel pretty content with what I was able to find, and I think I'll take a bit of a break from watching more. But yeah, it was certainly a very, very interesting genre to explore because it's definitely not for most people. Uh, because for for people who don't know, it's essentially films that have no no narrative. Like Stan Brakhage films are just essentially colors on the screen. I don't even know how to describe them really. But yeah, none of them have any characters. None of them have any story. It's just essentially pure pure visuals for like the the runtime, and they usually like experiment a lot with the cinematic form. Uh, like Leighton Pierce, he used a lot of like low shutter speed shots. Uh, Mecca's obviously used like really unique editing style. Stan Brakhage was like totally insane. He just like did colors again. I don't, I don't know how to des- describe his films, but yeah, he just did colors. Um, Scott Barley, he just like shoots nature slash cosmic horror in the nature. It's again really hard to describe, but it's it's really interesting to watch. And I found, uh, for one, I just found it quite. Quite a meditative, meditative experience to watch those films, but also, I think they they tapped into another another thing uh, that I really like about about films, which is like a film's ability to almost like transport you to a to a different space, a different time, uh, a different place entirely. And those films in particular, they almost like transport you to like. A different universe, not even a different planet, like a different universe to some extent. Yeah, I think all of those names are worth unpacking uh, a bit more and doing, uh, you know, follow up episodes on experimental mm. film in particular. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I like. I think most of those that I, I've seen films from you listed. The thing I wanted to say, at least about experimental film, and since you elaborated a bit on, on why you like it, I, I'm really drawn to experimental art in general, even not just in film form, but mm. things like music as well, which was kind of, I guess, a gateway to me liking uh, experimental film and then more like experimental visual art as well. I think the reason is it's, it's kind of a lot of reflection into this, but I, I do like just kind of the, the magnitude of freedom that these films yeah. showcase because every time you, you put one of these on, um, that, like anytime you put any film on, you'll have like some degree of expectations of what you're about to see. Like you'll, you'll know kind of more or less what the plot might be or what the characters are. And, you know, you, you maybe know this director and you'll know the themes he, he does. But with experimental film, you kind of throw all that out the window. The medium is kind of a limitless canvas. There's no rules. There's no knowing exactly what you're about to see. And so there's that kind of sheer freedom that I've, I've always loved about experimental film um, and, and experimental art in general. Yeah, for um, sure. Um, yeah, it's certainly very, a very limitless approach to art because when, when you're making narrative films or like music, there's a certain structure you have to follow, certain rules that you have to abide by if you want to make something that's, you know, like worthwhile. But in experimental uh, cinema, all of that sort of goes goes out goes out the window, and it's just like complete free reign. And uh, what's interesting is also that like all of these experimental filmmakers, their stuff is really different from one to another. Like sure, there's like some Teo Hernandez films that are maybe slightly similar to some Stan Brakhage films, but for the most part, their stuff is like uh, 
it almost like shouldn't even exist in the same genres, like really different from one to another. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. And I, I will do one more bragging of a of a screening I was able to attend where I got to see um, a bunch of Stan Brackage uh, oh, wow. single, <laughs> uh, screening earlier this uh, in 2023. Um, and that was really transformative, uh, seeing it on the big screen with an actually packed audience, which was interesting. Wow. Um, just kind oh, of sitting shit. in silence. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty, it was very cool. Um, it's probably one of my favorite things I've ever attended. Um, hmm. so, anyways, um, shall we move on to our, our next segment? Yeah. If you, if you're happy to move on, let's go for it. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, all right, so our next segment is about our favorite 2023 films, either new releases or just things we saw hmm. from this year. Yeah. So why don't you kick it off? What were some of your favorites <laughs> yeah. that you either saw from this year, new or otherwise? So I tried to think of an of a film that I saw in 2023, but the problem is I, I only saw like nine new releases and half of them were the Eva Sanderson uh, Roald Dahl short, shorts that he released this year so I, I didn't really feel like picking a 2023 film like and, and some of the stuff I checked out is like really obvious stuff like uh, Oppenheimer and Barbie and those sort of films so I, I don't really have an answer that came out in 2023 so I just went for, for a few films that I really liked that were like first watches for me this year and the films I went for were A Summer's Tale which is actually a Eric Romer film it's definitely my favorite film by him. I feel like the the story is the most complete in some ways. Like the script is, is really tight in this one where I felt like almost every single line that he put in the film had a callback later in the film and had like either some profound meaning or some relevance to the story that was to develop later. And I also feel, feel like... Uh, it's almost like a bit of a deceptive film because uh, it, it makes you think that it's almost about uh, the male character, but really it's it's about the... At least I felt like it, it was really about the... I can't remember her name. I think it was Margot, uh, one of one of the, the first female character that, that he meets. And I just found that the story really connected with me and affected me in some some deeper way than his his other films uh some other films that i really like this year is possession which we briefly <laughs> reference at the start of the episode and also delamore delamore uh which i've been in the america and english-speaking countries is also known by its much worse name i feel like cemetery man I was surprised that I liked this film because I usually don't care too much about zombie movies, but this was a really interesting zombie movie that was like not even highly stylized, was extremely stylized, surreal, super strange zombie movie and adaptation of a comic book story as well. And what I really liked about it is that I I, I felt as though the film was really about depression and I thought the way they sort of depicted it in this like surrealist manner while telling a story essentially about a guy who works in a cemetery and kills zombies that arise in the cemetery. I thought it was a really interesting way to do it. And it also like really connected with me in some ways. What about you? Are there, did you see any 2023 films? I did see a fair share of new films. 
Um, I will say it's a little unfair for like average people, you know, when, you know, at the end of 2023, all the critics released their top tens of the year and everything, yeah. but they, they have all these private screeners. They can get basically mm. almost every film they want to see seen. Yeah. But there's just a lot of films that have not released yet and people haven't seen from last year. Um, I've probably seen more than most because of, I've, I went to one film festival in California. Uh, so mm. I got to see like the new Hamaguchi, um, the new vendors, um, uh, a few others, the new, uh, the taste of things. Um, yeah. but I will say, um, having seen, I don't know, the range of like, I, I don't, I'm more selective with the new films I've seen. Uh, I've maybe yeah. seen like 30 or so. And, to be honest, I don't. I wouldn't say any of them have been amazing. <laughs> I think uh, okay. there's been a lot of very good films, and then a lot of the films that have been critically acclaimed. Just a good portion of them, I don't really care for. It's kind of strange this year because I felt that way more than most years. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe for my sake, I won't get into too many of of those hot takes. Um, Okay. <laughs> if you want to see them? Just just check out letterbox.com slash Olmec. Um, but okay. uh, yeah, uh, so I, I guess um, I'll, I'll my answer will be like yours, just talking about other films I've seen in the year 2023. Um, I think for me there were uh, there are also three films that made a a really big impression. These are all like top 50 ish films for me now. So. Um, yeah, one I know, I know you've seen this one, uh, which is the okay. Raúl Ruiz film *Love Torn in Dreams*. Oh um, yes, yeah, great film. Yeah, this 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 film like completely blew me away. It's I think my, it's my favorite by the director, the mm. uh, very quite cult in an art house sense director Raúl Ruiz, uh, who's kind of a yeah. man of multiple countries. Um, he spent he grew up I think in Chile. Um, yeah, he made French. France produced films and I, I think eventually found his way in Portugal. Um, mm. So, yeah. Um, this film was made in 2000. It uh, was one of his later films. And it, I don't know if you know the Saragossa manuscript, um, either the text or the film by, by Haas. Uh, I haven't Haas. seen the film, but I'm, I'm familiar with it. Like I, I, I know that it exists and I know roughly yeah. what it's about. Yeah, I'd highly recommend it's, I think, kind of a good precursor to this in a way, because it's really this mm. extremely intricate nested storytelling of, of it's very an, an oneric film uh, around the same eras that Love, Torn and Dreams also takes place in um, the kind of Napoleonic yeah. era. Um, so it's, it's a really crazy experience. It's just this kind of fever dream-esque quality where you're not sure which story or whether you're in a dream or not. Um, and I mean, yeah, for, yeah, would highly recommend. For, pe for for people who don't know, like Love Torn Dreams, essentially the film has twelve narratives. All of those narratives are like set in different points in history, but all the characters in those narratives are like played by the same actors essentially, and those mm -hmm. stories also like intersect in one another, even though they're they're set in different time periods. So it's a really confusing film to watch, but also like a very, very like strange, yeah, like fever, fever dream type experience, almost a really fascinating film. Yeah, I mean, the concept sounds kind of multiversey, um, which I, I don't want to 
pigeonhole that or you know <laughs> assign that word to to a Ruiz film because yeah <laughs> he's he's not at all really focused on the same things like a multiverse film are um so just what you know kind of defies more explanation would just would just recommend you see it um mm. uh a few other a couple other films uh one is this film called yo-yo um this is a french film from the 1960s 1965 and it's by this kind okay. of little known director I think I've by heard of it yeah it's so He's uh this is French director uh actor director called Pierre Atex. Um he's a French guy who's kind of contemporaneous with Jacques Tati. And my my hot take is Atex is by far the better actor director than than Tati. Um Okay. <laughs> uh but I've only seen one film of each so um Okay, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's it's a you know a very hollow take but it's okay. Um you can clip this uh, for our YouTube channel whenever that happens. Um, but <laughs> Yo-Yo... of the hot takes today. <laughs> yeah, Yo-Yo is this really... It's, it's, it's a funny film, but it's also moving and melancholic in parts. It's just this wonderful blend of, of whimsy, lots of, of visual gags uh, about the kind of illusion of perspective. Um, it's I'd also call it humanist, like that word we were hmm. describing earlier. And the one thing I do like, which it's not really a spoiler, um, it's just kind of the filmmaking. Uh, and it, you'll, you'll, anyone who sees it, this is kind of happens in the first 20 or 30 minutes. But there's this really interesting conceit because the film takes place in the 1920s uh, and 60s. So it begins like hmm. at the time silent films were being made. Um, and so the film starts as a silent film. And then when it moves into the 30s, it becomes a sound film. So, I mean, it's oh, it's a really just kind of simple but brilliant concept that maybe seems obvious by now. Like, why hasn't anyone really done something like this? I think there are a few that kind of do. Um, you know, there's like The Artist or whatever that film was kind of recently. But um, mm, yeah, yeah. But Atex beat you to it by 60 some years. So um, <laughs> anyways, I uh, would, would highly recommend Um and then the last film is a a lot more probably more more daunting, which is uh, the Soviet War and Peace. Um, mm, it's a, okay. it's the four part film by Sergei Bondarchuk, um, made in also the sixties between nineteen sixty six and sixty seven. Um, yeah, and it's a it, so it has some interesting history because it was the film the Soviets poured an inordinate amount of money into. Um, as a way to, because it was, it was during the Cold War, they were trying to show the Americans like who you know the true you know craftsmen of film were at the time, <laughs> and also yeah. because America they they did take a shot at adapting War and Peace in the fifties, um, which I haven't seen, but you know I don't think anyone really talks about nowadays. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, it it's this awesome film uh visually and everything and and it's it's super long and because it's in four parts it's like this you can think of it like a mini series um over like seven hours i think um but it really just flies by i mean there's a lot of sections that are like battle sequences that are really just stunning and epic but all the parts in between are, are are great as well that use pretty uh even sometimes experimental angles and techniques um i mean would 
it's just a it's just a great experience um wonderful visually um and amazing so yeah would highly recommend yeah there was one so it film was also really close to putting on my list as well which is uh, cranes are flying the 1957 oh, kalatazov film mm. uh, which i saw it, like at the very end of the year like uh, 28th of december i want to say and it oh it really hit me deeply emotionally made me the ending made me cry but also just the film was was so impressively well made the shots were so it had like both like the really stark still shots as well as like those really like chaotic almost like experimental-esque moving shots where you just like lose yourself in the chaos it was a really impressive film that i nearly put on my list like one other film just, just popped into my mind it also like very nearly made the list was uh, the white ribbon which i guess i also just want to throw out there because i did also have a pretty big pretty big hanukkah year i had never seen a hanukkah prior to this year and i watched like four or five of his films this year and loved all of them as well he's another filmmaker i sort of discovered that that i that i love throughout the year awesome yeah i have not seen the white ribbon but i i, I do want to i i do like hanukkah and the, the few i've seen um as a funny side note, I, I attended a Hanukkah screening as well, and the introduction, the person who was introducing him, mm. this is one of the most American things, but he, he called him Haneke. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which I think a lot of us were looking at each other like, are you, is this guy serious? And it was funny because it was also like a, a video Q&A with, with the director, so I... <laughs> I don't. I don't think he said that to his face, but uh, uh, yeah, that would that would have been. I think I think Hanukkah would have ended the call instantly. <laughs> um, Sad enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's our recap of the year done. Now, before we're gonna end the this podcast episode, I do have a little secret segment that I didn't tell you much about. Oh no. It's a little little game show that I thought of. Essentially, what I've done is I've uh, is I've brought four movie posters with me, and for the, for audio listeners, all of these movie posters are the ones that you basically, if you look up these films on Letterbox, this is the default movie poster that they have currently, to 2024 January, whatever poster they had at that point in time. That's the poster we're talking about. And I just want, I'm just going to give these posters to you and I want you to give them a grading. So the first poster that I have is the Shining poster. Yeah, so this poster, I mean, it's like this yellow poster. Um, you see, I think that's Jack Nicholson's face um, kind of in this uh, very uh, scary shot uh, across the letters. But it's it's very um, quite simple overall design. Um I like it. It's a, I think it's it's effective and it really that's all you need to say I think about this movie. Um, so, uh, what sort of grade do you want? Thumbs up. Uh, 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 I whatever I you feel. You can up. just get okay. You go. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so so, my I have a bit of like conflicted feelings on this poster. I think the yellow is really iconic, like it's the same yellow that they use for Doctor Sleep, and I think the yellow also comes from the novel. But don't quote me on that. I might be making stuff up here. And uh, the text on the yellow is also pretty iconic. But uh, the the problem that I have with it is that I think 
the one thing that a poster should do is they should tell you something about the film. And I look at the face and the T, and it looks like an alien to me. <laughs> and I feel like that's just kind of kind of misleading, like un, un, unless you like recognize that. It, Have it, you? I, no. do, I just don't know if it if it tells you that much about the film. So it, it, it's weird. Like I, f- I feel like it's 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 iconic, but also it's not my favorite poster of all time. So I think I'd give it like a not a thumbs up and not a thumbs down, but like a shaky hand. Have you seen the like one of the original trailers for The Shining? Um, it's the one I'm thinking of is just like a, maybe a 30 second trailer uh, shot of the elevator. Um, and the elevator is it, just is opens. It the, the blood, the blood. Uh, yep. Oh yeah, yeah, have, yep. yeah. I I mean I think this poster is kind of in that same realm where it's it, you know it it I don't think the trailer it, the trailer I think says all I'd want to know also um, it's also iconic. Mm. Um, yeah, the poster is a little less so, but I I think I think I, I don't know I I don't need to know much more about the shining uh, if, if i were coming yeah, into it for fair. the first time it's it's weird because i've also seen this poster so much and it's mm. not something i like consciously think of so i can't yeah. i can't really imagine something else uh changing this um or replacing it so um okay the next poster that i have is another very iconic film it's the taxi mm-hmm. driver poster yeah this one I'm kind of okay with. I wouldn't say it's great mm-hmm. or bad. Um, it really just, you, you see Robert De Niro, AKA Travis Bickle, standing in the middle of the poster, a taxi car behind him. And then the kind of just the words taxi driver. You're in a, like a, a New York st- street at night. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm kind of okay with it. It's not one of the better posters out there, but um I mean, you see, it, it fulfills the name. There's a taxi and there's the driver. Um, it doesn't really... I think The Shining poster at least gives you the sense this is going to be some trippy, weird horror film. Uh, this one is like, I don't know. It's uh, it's a guy with a taxi. Um, okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see a lot of the themes in this poster. How about you? Yeah, I think... Uh... Yeah, it's definitely not as stark and maybe as, as as iconic as the Shining poster, but there are certainly elements of it that I like. I like how the blue and the yellow interact. I also like that it sort of sets itself apart, at least from like the taxi franchise films. It's definitely a lot more like stark, high contrast. And I like the how uh, the car is placed behind Travis, which causes, which essentially helps him to isolate him from the background a little. So mm. I, I don't hate this poster, but I do also agree with you that it's, it's not like one of the like the most iconic posters of all time. I, I would still probably give it a thumbs up myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm lukewarm. Um, but uh, again, it's one I've seen forever. And if it were replaced, it would still feel weird to me. So um, yeah, uh, I don't know what would replace it, um, but mm. just not yeah. one of the most <laughs> iconic ones. Yeah. Um, okay. The next poster that I have is uh, actually we're now leaving American cinema, and we're going to France. The next poster I have is Beau Travail, the Claire Denis film. Yeah. This I like this poster. Um, this one is you, you see just uh, the shirtless man who's kind of the uh, object of interest of Denis Levant, the main character. 
um, mm. but you don't really see his face. Um, so it's it's all in silhouette, uh, but you do see his body. And the film is really about the corporeal or like focused on the homoeroticism of of this you know these multiple bodies, but this guy in particular. Um, and so I, I think that communicates it exactly. Um, and I wouldn't, I don't think I'd change anything. Um, I like the blue background as well. Mm. Um, I give it two thumbs up. Yeah, I, I feel very much similar to you. This is one of one of my favorite posters. I think the blue is super iconic. Uh, the poster itself is an actually a shot from the film that's been adjusted, like the shadow mm. over the his face has been added but like i said with the shining poster like what i'm looking for a poster is that it tells me something about the film and i feel like this sort of like really nails it because what really stands out about this film is how claire denis shot the human body in it but also the, the whole film is sort of like about this homoeroticism as you said masculinity insecurity and i feel like you look at this and you get that like get the sense that it's going to be like about masculinity to some degree and, and i think the blue, the, blue in yep. the background is also just super iconic as well and identity i think the the uh silhouette of the face is really like about mm, yeah. self-discovery of, of of a person and so uh, yeah a thematically amazing poster yeah i'd give this one a two thumbs up as well okay the last poster that i have is the come and see poster yeah, so this one, I think I like the, I think I really like the poster. I don't know if it fits the film entirely. To me, it kind of has a weird sci-fi quality. Mm, um, yeah. <laughs> with the colors, it's like blue and red and yellow, and so it almost looks kind of like this would be the poster for something like Dead Man Letters, uh, the that Soviet film about like yeah. this post-apocalyptic wasteland. Um, this come and see is obviously like you know a really distressing war film um but it really is for the most part like anchored in reality um and really horrific to, um <laughs> so i mean I, I do like the poster i'm just saying i don't know if it matches the film exactly so i'm kind of yeah. moderate thumbs up yeah, I think this is where I come in with the hot take because I remember this when this poster got replaced on Letterboxd, there was like a big uproar of people who were really upset and wanted this particular poster back and they brought it back. But I'm actually not a big fan of this. Like for one, what you mentioned with the colors, I feel like it gives you a sense that it's going to be a sci-fi film. But also just aside from that, like when I'm looking at a poster, what I think... Uh, the goal almost from like a photographic point of view is that you want to get like good subject isolation so that your eyes sort of gravitate to something and that you pay attention to something specific in it and something like really sticks in your mind and in this poster just kind of hard to even unless you have seen the film it's hard to even make out what you're actually looking at here which is why I'm not not the biggest fan of this poster i think it's a bit misleading and it's just not not that sort of clear or like that sort of in mm. line with what the film is so i'd, I'd probably give this one a thumbs down unfortunately mm. yeah in terms of fit with the film i, I agree i just I, I do like the colors um and i just think it's for the wrong film <laughs> um yeah so. i agree <laughs> um 
Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's all the posters. And lastly, just to wrap up the podcast, as always, do you have any end of podcast recommendations for the viewers? Yes. This was a film I just saw. Um, it's it's a film called The Company of Strangers. Uh, it's a Canadian film from 1990, directed by Cynthia Scott, whom I don't know if she mm. made anything else of note, but at least this film was was really beautiful. And I think it relates back to what we were saying about humanist films. It's a really just a film about a group of old women vibing, um, reminiscing about life. <laughs> uh, it has this somewhat surreal premise of these women going somewhere. You're not exactly sure where, but they're on a bus and the bus breaks down. And mm. so they, they take refuge at this abandoned house. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't end up like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just for those curious. <laughs> um, it's really just a series of reflections on life that are, are really beautiful. And the other thing is yeah. they're also informed by the actual lives of these actresses, because after like a scene, you'll see these photos of these women at an earlier age, um, with either the people they're talking about, um, you know, or, or just something about their lives. So I, it's kind of almost not quite Kiristami, but it's somewhat in that, you know, fiction informed by reality type of filmmaking, which I find just really quite interesting and beautiful. Hmm. Old women vibing was, was certainly a strong pitch. It made me immediately interested in wanting to check this one out. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I sort of kept up the tradition that I started last time and did not go for a film recommendation again. Instead, went for another book, which is a book I reread recently. Uh, I think at the end of, no, at the start of December, and it's Carmilla the Sheridan Lofanu book about, well, vamp vampires, essentially. It's a very short book, so it's, qu it's quite a quick read if anyone wants to check it out. Uh, what's interesting about this book is that it technically isn't the, the first modern vampire story, but it's the one that... Uh, it's essentially the first popular modern vampire story. It predates Dracula, and it sets a lot of the tropes that we nowadays associate with vampires in place it's like for instance uh, people don't really know but uh, obviously vampires existed in folklore but they were completely different they didn't really drink blood they usually ate corpses they weren't nothing they didn't look anything like humans they were like this completely different thing that also kind of fell out of popularity uh in like 16th, 17th century, and people kind of forgot about them until Carmilla and subsequently Dracula sort of brought them back into the mainstream, as well as redefined a lot of their tropes. So a lot of like the stuff like uh, vampires looking like humans, vampires drinking blood, uh, some of the vampire weaknesses, those come from this book. And I just feel like this is a really interesting book. It also like tackles briefly tackles homosexuality as well which is really interesting for a book that's like sort of written at written at that time particularly with uh, how prudish the dracula book can be at times this was really like a forward forward thinking novel and i really enjoy rereading it whenever i get a chance to do so oh i didn't know it established all those tropes that's really interesting mm. cool okay well i think that's going to be going to be it from us do you have any parting words for the listeners daniel um 
I, I guess until next time, this was a fun recap. Um, I got to flex on all the different screenings I went to, uh, which is fun. Um, but yeah, I, I think next time we'll focus probably on something like maybe a particular film or sub-movement. Um, but these, hmm. these recaps and kind of taste episodes, episodes of better taste have been fun to do. So Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Okay, until next time, take care.